All right. That was for the young, now for the young at heart. Well, she can sit there. Well, it's okay. You're going to go back and sit with Mommy and Daddy? You want to sit there? Huh? I'm glad you liked the, the story today. All right. Here we go. Romans, I mean Acts. Talking about Romans. Acts chapter... 22, Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 22. So, last week, we saw Paul come to Jerusalem. He speaks to the multitudes of people and um, begins addressing the crowd, and that's where trouble begins. So, one thing I want to, before we read our text today. Uh, One of the advantages of preaching and teaching through the Scripture is that we take what the Scripture presents to us and we apply it to our life. Um, There's a thing called topical preaching and there's nothing necessarily wrong with topical preaching and sometimes we preach on topics because it's appropriate. But As a rule, in in our church, we try to preach and teach through the scriptures. So right now, we're working through the book of Acts on Sunday morning. And on Wednesday night, we're studying uh, more in depth, verse by verse, through the book of Romans. Um, And so, sometimes the thought is that through topical preaching, we can preach about topics that are more relevant that implies that not all the Bible's relevant, which is a very erroneous thing to believe or to imply. So I think, I think we need to, to know that all Scripture is relevant for the day. And it's amazing to me that as we're preaching, we started preaching through Acts quite a long time ago. In case you guys haven't noticed, we don't necessarily get in a hurry as we're going through the Scripture. But it's always amazing to me that we find ourselves at a place in the text that we're, we're studying that is so relevant for the day that we're living in. And that's not accidental because the scripture, all of it, is relevant for our lives. And so I believe once again God is showing us how relevant his word is uh, to our lives today as we live our lives in the current environment that we're living in. Jesus taught his disciples to pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught his disciples to pray that. Jesus also prayed for his disciples. We'll look at this a little bit later in John 17. And in his prayer, Jesus reveals that just as he was not of this world, we as his disciples are not of this world. And if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, then we need to know that both of these prayers apply to our lives today. And even though Jesus did not speak those words directly to us, Jesus absolutely spoke those words directly for us. So to his advantage, the Apostle Paul understood the distinction of being in the world but not of the world. 
he understood that distinction and he used it to his advantage. So Acts chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why, he shouted, why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum of money I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander also was afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that your word is relevant. Not only that, it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts to the very dividing of bone and marrow. Lord, it discerns the intents of the heart. We embrace your word, God, and we ask that you would, through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, renew our minds, transform us, conform us to a greater measure. Lord, to be like Jesus, that our lives would be conformed to the likeness of the Son of Glory, that as we live and walk through this earth, Lord, as we are witnesses in this world, it is the light of Christ that would shine forth and dispel the darkness. Father, we thank you that you in your grace have chosen us and called us to be your very own and have filled us and put your spirit inside of us that we could walk in this earth, that we could walk through this world with power and be witnesses to you to your glory. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Paul was in the Roman Empire, but Paul was of the kingdom of God. So this is what it means to be in the world, but not to be of the world. So we're not denying that we don't live on earth and we don't live in this world. We're in the world but we're not of the world. Paul was in the Roman Empire and he had rights as a Roman citizen, but Paul understood that he was of the kingdom of God. Now, wherever Paul lived or traveled in this world, we can be sure that he was not of this world. He had been born a citizen of Rome, but he had also been born again a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom. And maybe you are natural-born citizens of this nation, and you became a citizen by the fact of your birth, the same way Paul became a citizen of Rome. Well, we become citizens of heaven the same way. We must be born citizens of heaven. And that's not a natural birth like we had as Americans or as human beings from our the womb of our mother, we're born again from above by the Spirit. That's how we become 
citizens of heaven. So for Paul, being a citizen of Rome or a citizen in this world had advantages and disadvantages, but Paul understood that he was a citizen of a realm that transcended anything of this world or anything of this earth. Being in the world but not of the world is the truth for all who belong to Jesus. And this distinction is made clear by the prayer that Jesus prays in John 17. John 17, 14 through 16. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the truth presented by Jesus in this prayer here that, he, that we just read is that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. That is exactly what Jesus was when he walked this earth. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. For all that is in the world, um, John writes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so John in his, in his first letter here in 1 John chapter 2 he tells us, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. And then he says, this is all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, John writes, is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. John penned those words some 2,000 years ago, and he says the world is passing away. Now, there's a way we can understand this. Uh, there's more than one way we can understand this, but I think in a big picture way that we should understand it today, 2,000 years after John pins these words in his letter, is that the world is passing away. It's that simple. The world is passing away. And if the world is passing away, then, then what is replacing it? Well, what's replacing it is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so we have been living, this is our time of visitation on this earth, in this world right now. However long your life is, this is your time of visitation. But the world has been going on for much longer than we've been around, right? And, and so we know for at least the past 2,000 years, the world has been passing away. But it's still here. So this is, this is the wisdom and the discernment that the people of God must have as we live our lives in this world. If we are children of God, if we belong to Jesus, are we... Of this world? The answer is no. Do we live in this world? The answer is yes. And that's a distinction that we must understand. So I want to pull back for a moment. I want to, 
I want to take us uh, from a larger view. I want us to see this from a larger view. So when, when, when John writes this, do not love the world or the things in the world, there's lots of things we can think about that we shouldn't love, right? There's lots of things we, we know that we shouldn't be involved in, we shouldn't be doing, because they're, they're the lust of the flesh, they're the lust of the eyes, they're the pride of life. But God's world is not just a bunch of don'ts. In fact, let's go back to the garden and think. There was only one don't, and everything else was a yes. Don't eat of this tree. Don't eat the fruit from this tree. One don't. I think it sounds pretty simple, right? But man still blew it. So when we read scriptures like 1 John 2, 15 through 17, we can think of a lot of don'ts. We can think of a lot of things that, that we don't want to be conformed to, that we don't want to involve ourselves, that we don't want to uh, you know, participate in. Because they fall into one of these or all three of these categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And, and those things are not of the Father. They're of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust that's in it. But God abides forever. So let's consider how this spiritual truth of being in the world but not of the world impacts the way we walk out our faith here on the earth. No doubt there is a right way and a wrong way that we can apply this truth to our life. And we're not going to talk about many of the obvious ways that it applies. You could think right now in just a moment all sorts of behaviors that are not consistent with Christ, that are not consistent with the Word of God, that are not consistent with those who claim to be followers of Jesus. But suffice it to say that the immorality of the world that we live in today is all around us. It's in our face and it's being shoved down our throats constantly. There are ways that the world lives to which we are obviously not to be conformed. We all get that. And if you are having trouble identifying some of these areas of life, there's lots of memes on social media that make it very... Uh, in your face, do's and don'ts. I don't necessarily recommend that. I think you should go to the Bible personally. It's what the Bible has to say about how we should live our lives. That's the best reference for knowing who or what our life should be conformed to. So the current example of what the world values was seen recently. Maybe some of you didn't. I don't watch network television. I don't watch television. Not because I'm opposed to it. I watch movies and shows, but I don't watch network TV. I don't watch network news because it just has nothing, it has nothing of value to, for me at all. Um, but I, I, I noticed that the Grammys were recently... An, an example of what I'm talking about that should be obvious would be this example of what the world values as it was seen and promoted and awarded this simulated sex act between scantily clad women live on national television 
and the world justifying it as artistic expression. Now that's going on all the while Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny, and Dr. Seuss have been canceled by the culture and called inappropriate. Now, if you can figure that out, you let me know. Really, there's not much to figure out. It's just sin. This is sin. This is the result of sin. This is what sin does to a culture. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If you haven't noticed, the Lord is not God of our nation. He's not. And if you think he is, you can't have the things happening in our nation and him be the Lord of our nation. He's not. We live in a world that idolizes men and women who promote the most vile and vulgar lifestyles while we literally demonize wholesome cartoon characters. It will get worse before it gets better if the church does not gain her legs and some courage to stand up. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. So, we live in this world among this, but that's not who we are. We're not of that. We are of God and of his kingdom. And as followers of Christ, there is an obvious way we are to live in this world that makes clear that we are not of this world. So I want to focus on one particular disputed area within the church. Because really and truly, you know, you've heard the cry, you can't judge me. The world very often says this. And if we read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul says it's not our business to judge the world, it's our business to judge the church. God will judge the world. So in one sense, I agree with what I often hear the world say, I don't have to judge them. They are already judged and they are already under condemnation. This is why Jesus said, I didn't come to save the world. Uh, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it because the world was already under condemnation. He came to save a world that was already condemned. And so when we think about this, when we think about this area of, of how does the church navigate the world? How does the church go through the world and properly understand her place and what she is to do and how she is to impact the world around her? And I think some of these areas are disputed within the church. They're not clear because we don't properly understand the teaching of Scripture and the example set for us by, by Jesus himself. The disciples of Jesus followed his example in how they lived in this world, knowing they were not of this world. Is the church specifically, specifically is the gospel political? It's a trick question, I know. There's a yes and there's a no there. But I want to look at Paul in the book of Acts. This is where we are as we go through the book of Acts. And I want to look at Paul and I want to gain some perspective as we consider uh, this, this question. And as we consider the Apostle Paul and how he navigated this world, uh, his example can help us. So like Jesus, Paul would eventually become hated by those in the world because he was not the same as them. This happened pretty much everywhere he went. He was not like them. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. The light and life in every believer, you do know that you have light and life in you if you belong to Jesus. 
the light and life in every believer should expose the darkness of this world. Now, I want you to think, it's, it's, it's really not complicated. It's like discipleship. Discipleship is not complicated. It's just hard. But it's not complicated. It, being a light to the world is not complicated. So it's just like if we put a light in a dark room, what would happen? The mere presence of the light brings the contrast between light and darkness. You just simply put a light in a room, in a dark room, and you've got the contrast between light and darkness. The light's just there. The mere presence of the light brings the contrast. So it should be with believers in the world. Our presence, if we have light and life in us, our presence, our mere presence in the world should bring a contrast. And if it's not, this is where the church needs to judge herself. Judgment begins in the house of God. And the church needs to ask, why is there not a contrast between the church and the world? If the church is filled with light and life and we are in a dark world, why is there no contrast? It's a legitimate question that we should be asking ourselves. Our mere presence in the world should bring a contrast between light and darkness. That should happen because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. There should be a clear contrast between those of the world and those that are not of the world. And we see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. We see that he understood this very well and that he lived in the world, though he was not of the world. His acts and those of others are recorded for us that we may learn from his example and follow that example for the advancement of the gospel and of the kingdom. Paul was not of the world, but he used worldly means to establish, uh, he used worldly means established by God or ordained by God to advance the gospel. You might say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? We need to be wise and we need to use all that is at our disposal to leverage our message and advance the gospel. So, besides roads and ships, and all sorts of public venues. Paul used all sorts of worldly means, we could say, to advance the gospel. The Romans built the roads with slave labor. Paul used the roads to take the gospel to the world. Most of the ships that were built that Paul sailed on were probably built with slave labor. But Paul didn't say, I'm not going to sail on this ship because slaves built it. He gladly got on the ship so that he could take the gospel to the world. Did he approve of the way the, the empire or the way certain people treated other people? No, that's not the point. Of course he didn't. That's why he was preaching the gospel, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest social justice message that we could ever preach, that we could ever know. Paul used the fact that he was a Roman citizen to maximize his rights under the laws of Rome. Paul used this to his advantage in order to advance the gospel. As Christians, let's bring it to our day. We don't live in the Roman Empire. We're 2,000 years later in America. 
a country that's not even 300 years old yet. We are young. When you talk about world empires, we are very young. As Christians who are American citizens, we must not hesitate to maximize the rights guaranteed us under our Constitution. Paul was not shy about speaking out and making sure his rights were respected. We too must not be shy about speaking up when our rights are being violated. It is God who has granted us these rights and freedoms. They come from him. We must not take our rights for granted and we must maximize them for the advancement of the gospel of Christ and for the kingdom of God. We see this, we see that the government, when it encroaches on our rights as citizens, when that happens, we should not remain silent. We have a right to speak up. Now, in, in the Roman Empire, anybody could speak up anytime they wanted about anything. It just may cost them their head, right? But in America, we have this thing called free speech. Now, that, we literally can't say anything we want anytime we want in any place we want. Like yelling fire in a crowded theater could actually get you in a lot of trouble because that, that would be against the law because you could create a panic and people literally could lose their lives. But if there really is a fire, you should yell fire and help people orderly leave. But if we don't agree with our government, we have a right to speak up about that. Or we have a right to preach the gospel here, there, or anywhere we want as Americans. Now, people don't have to listen to it. They have the right to reject it. They have the right to say, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to hear you. That's, that's their right. And I support that. I don't advise it, but I do support it. So for the sake of our freedoms, and most importantly for the sake of the gospel, we must speak up and we must be willing to step out. There are many in the church today who do not believe the church should be involved in anything that is remotely political. The definition of political, to me at least, seems to be very vague and housed under a very large tent. Here's an example for your consideration. purposefully vague. If a city council passes a policy forbidding citizens from displaying a seasonal cross that had been displayed for many years previous on a public square without a rental fee, is sending a letter requesting reconsideration political? Some say it is, and we should not. Others say, well, it's our right. We should. As long as we're not mean, and vindictive and rude, there's nothing wrong. Some would, say it, some would say it is and that the church should not engage in such divisive actions that will mar our witness. Others say this is not a gospel issue, therefore it's inappropriate to send a letter. Some believe we should quietly obey the rules and regulations set forth by the government. Now in fairness, these Christians who are maybe advocating that we obey the rules of the government, I have to believe that they're not saying there is never a time to stand up, just that this is not that time. 
And as Americans, we have the right to agree uh, to, to agree to disagree, right? And if we're given rights in this world along with the proper means to protect them, when do people not of this world speak up to protect those rights that God gave them? Did you get that? Is it being of the world to exercise our rights as citizens of a nation? If the government passes laws or policies that infringe upon our rights and freedoms, when do the Christians speak up to oppose those policies? The answer to the question will be different with different people, depending on who you ask. Some will be quick to speak up, others not so quick. Now, just so you know, I do believe the Bible, and we are subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13, verses 1 through 3. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, we could spend a long time just on those three verses right there. Uh, but that's not our text today. But I, I, I wanted to read that because I want you to understand that I do believe the Scripture, and I do believe that we are to be subject to the governing authorities because God has placed authority in, in our lives and over us. Now, Paul wrote those words as a citizen of Rome and the Roman Empire. And Paul had rights as a citizen of Rome, and he was not afraid to exercise those rights. We are citizens of the United States of America. We're Christians who live here. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we live in America in this world, but we're not of this world. I want you to keep this in mind as we're talking about this today. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We are given and guaranteed freedoms under our Constitution. Ours is a government by the people and for the people. In other words, the people are the government and the government is the people. This freedom to elect our leaders from the people and to be governed freely by the people under a Constitution that guarantees certain inalienable rights means the government didn't give those rights to us. God gave those rights to us. And the government can't take those rights away from us because they're inalienable. They can't take them away because they didn't come from them. These are things, by the way, that uh, schools don't teach students anymore. Which is why many people in America today don't understand their rights. They think they came from the government. And if the government decides that they want to take it away, they can just take it away. Because it came from the government after all. No, actually it did not. It came from God. It came from God. For that to mean anything to you, I guess you would have to believe in God. <laughs> Which tells you that the men who founded this nation and wrote our founding documents could not think outside of a worldview that did not include God. They, they could not think outside of, of that worldview. Their worldview included God, was created by God. Everything came from God. Now, they had disagreements about God, no doubt. But their worldview was 
firmly within the context of the God of creation. And they acknowledged him and they worshiped him. So if we believe that we have these inalienable rights given to us by God's grace, if we believe that it's God that's given us the structure of authority to govern, that governs us, and the scripture clearly teaches that he has because all authority comes from God, it stands to reason that Christians living in America while not being of this world would exercise those God-given rights for the furtherance of the gospel and the kingdom of God. If God has established the polity of a nation, if we believe all authority comes from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, and that polity gives rights and freedoms to all of its citizens to choose their leaders and to make their laws, it stands to reason that God gave that so his people could engage in the process. And there's a purpose for engaging in the process, from writing a letter to city council to voting on election day, from praying for our leaders to actually engaging them in conversation, or perhaps even running for political office to bring godly governance to a jurisdiction, whether it's a local, county, state, or national. There are many ways we might directly or indirectly engage the process. One of the purposes for engaging in that process of our governance of our land is to be in cooperation with the system of governance that God has blessed us with. In America, God in his sovereign will has given us freedom. He's given freedom to men. We're free men. We're free women. We're free children. We are free people. And he calls those free men to govern themselves. And if it was God's will that we govern ourselves, then we should govern according to his will. Those who profess faith in Christ should seek to govern in obedience to God's word. And they should seek to be governed in obedience to God's word. Which means when we exercise our right to vote, we should vote for those candidates which will best govern in obedience to God's word. So we have God-given rights and we should exercise them for God's glory. So let's come back to Paul. Paul, before he is beaten, asks a simple question. Is it lawful? Is it lawful for you to, 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 to beat an uncondemned Roman citizen? Oh, that, that was a revelation to the guy fixing to lay the first stripe on him. And he goes to the commander and he says, whoa, you better be careful. This guy's a Roman citizen. Now, why were they so fearful? If you remember the text, they were very fearful of what had happened. They hadn't even hit him yet. They just tied him up, getting ready to beat him. And they were in fear of what could happen to them because of their actions. That's because there were laws in place. There was authority in place. That commander had the authority in his position to scourge Paul. Paul understood that commander had the authority to do that. Paul wasn't questioning whether he had the authority to beat someone. Paul appealed to a higher authority. The commander's authority resided under that higher authority of Rome itself. 
And Paul appealed to that higher authority that gave him certain rights as a Roman citizen. And one of those was, you can't beat me if I'm uncondemned. Just like in America, they can't arrest you and incarcerate you, theoretically, technically, without reading you your rights and having a reasonable cause to, to pull you over or to come to your house or do whatever to begin with, because we have rights. Paul was in the world, but he was not of the world. Paul, though living in the world, used worldly means and authority ordained by God to make sure his God-given rights were not infringed upon. God had put those rights in place, even in Paul's day. And Paul understood that because, because of that, the entire, what Paul understood was that the entire world was the Lord's. This is what we should understand today. The entire world belongs to the Lord and the fullness within it all. It's God's. Paul gladly took those things in this world that are ordained by God and he used them to further the gospel. He used the means of this world to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus did the same. It was through a worldly means of death ordained by God that brought the redemption of God's people. God saved the world through a method of execution that the Assyrians developed, or the Scythians. Scythians developed it, the Assyrians perfected it. That's why Jonah hated the Assyrians. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, because they were very cruel people. And that means of execution was taken by the Romans and they used it widely. And God allowed that means created by sinful men to be used to crucify his only begotten son. The church today cannot shrink back and surrender the earth to those of the world. The earth and its fullness is the Lord's. We will inherit the earth one day until then we use every means available that is ordained by God to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it, is to as it is in heaven. As I've said before, Jesus is Lord is the most political statement you can make. It was the most political statement you can make in the Roman Empire. It cost, it cost millions of Christians their lives. It is still costing Christians their lives today. So if the world ever comes to you and says the church shouldn't be political, equip yourself to be able to take them through the scripture and show them that everything about Jesus Christ, everything about the gospel, everything about what God has commanded us to do as his children in the world, it is political. If we say kingdoms are political, then the gospel is political. Because the gospel is about the kingdom of God. And the Great Commission, people say the Great Commission isn't political. It absolutely is political. What do you think? Disciple the nations and make them obey. What is that? What is that? Go take that to Washington and say, hey, here's, what do you think about this, Ms. Pelosi? What do you think about this, Mr. Schumer? What do you think about this, anybody? You can pick anybody you want. City Council, what do you think about this? They're going to say, oh, you can't do that. 
Okay, well, I understand you don't think I can do this, but this is what Jesus commands me to do. And there's a way we do it in love. If we love our brother, will we tell our brother the truth? If our brother is on a road to destruction, and I know he's on a road to destruction, is it loving to tell my brother the truth that I know will offend him or to stay silent and let him enter destruction? Well, you know the answer to that. Love demands that even if it offends my brother, I've got to tell him the truth in an attempt to save him from destruction. This is why the church today can't be afraid to call sin, sin. If the Bible calls it sin, then we can't be afraid to call it sin. The world might not like it. They might not be your friend. They might not befriend you or they might block you or unfriend you on Facebook. But is it worth it? It all starts in our own hearts and it moves out from there. We are the church. We've got to find our legs. We've got to gain our courage and we've got to engage the culture. And, and if we have rights as Americans, that we can express those things freely, lawfully, but we've got people who are afraid of offending those who might not agree with us and so they make rules that say you can't do that. If it's our right to do that, is it wrong for Christians to stand up and say, no, that's my right as an American, and I happen to believe that I have those rights because God gave them to me. But what the world wants to do is what the enemy always does. He wants to intimidate. If, if he can't convince us there's another way, you know, like another gospel, look, don't listen to that gospel. That gospel's too harsh. Let's do this gospel over here. It's, it's much, much easier. It's much more soothing. It, it makes a way for everyone to be saved, no matter what they believe. That's the gospel that we want. The only problem is that's not the gospel Jesus preached. That's not the gospel he commands us to preach. So it all starts in our own heart. It moves out from there. In our church, our family, our church, our, our communities. This is our Jerusalem. But we're not to stay in Jerusalem. We're to go to the ends of the earth with the message of the truth, with the message of the gospel. We're in a war for the soul of the church. Before we can win the nation, we better win the church. We better not focus on the world. Don't focus on America. You better focus on the church. Because America will never be healed until the church repents of her sin and cries out to God. Then the Bible says God will hear from heaven and he will heal the land. It's dependent upon the people of God. So we're in a battle. We're in a war for the soul of the church and the nation. The enemy cannot win. I want you to hear this. He cannot win. But that does not mean we cannot surrender. Whatever happens to us, this is our time of visitation on the earth. Whatever we collectively or individually decide to do, how we're going to engage the culture, whatever we decide, that's up to us. And we may surrender to the culture. We may deceive ourselves into believing there is a better gospel than the one that we find in the Scripture. 
And we may surrender. Our surrender will not cost God his victory. God wins. God wins. Period. But what our surrender will do, it will cost us. It will cost us. And it will also cost the generations coming after us. Surrender is costly. So, Jesus wins. The enemy has already been defeated. The end of things is not in question. The world is passing away. Jesus told us what to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We got to get busy praying that. We got to get busy living that. We've got to get busy seeing that come to pass. Trusting not in our own power, not in our own might, but in the power of the Lord. In his might. Fear not. Jesus is king. It doesn't matter what the tech giants say. It doesn't matter what the culture says. We need to get delivered of that. We need to help those around us get delivered from that. Delivered from that fear. Fear not. Jesus is king. Each week we come to this table, and this table should remind us each week that Jesus has conquered all. And for that, we should be most thankful. This is what the table is. It's a table of thanksgiving. And as the church learns to walk by faith and not by sight, to not be moved by the things and the distractions that, that we see around us, we will come to understand more and more and more the victory that Christ has won for us. And that should embolden us to live courageously. The greatest obstacle that Jesus conquered was our sin. Jesus didn't have any sin. He died for our sin. And our sin was the greatest obstacle, the biggest mountain that we could ever face, that we would never overcome on our own. And now that Jesus has conquered sin for us, he has put his life and his spirit in us. And he commands us to go and conquer the nations, disciple them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And his promise is, I am with you even until the end of the age. You don't have to be a member of Christ's Fellowship Church, but if you count yourself a member of the body of Christ, if you are a covenant member of God's people, you are welcome to this table. We'll all be served, and then we'll all eat and drink together. Amen? Christian, welcome to Jesus. Let's all stand. We see in these verses that we read today in Acts that Paul was not afraid to exercise his rights as a Roman citizen. And I submit to you that Paul didn't do it simply to save his life. Paul did it for the sake of the gospel. And we're going to see next week where the Lord appears to Paul and makes a promise that just as he testified in Jerusalem, he will 
also testify in Rome. Jesus called his people, the church, the salt of the earth. He called us the light of the world. Jesus said earth and world on purpose. Not inside the four walls. Jesus commands us to disciple nations. That means he commands us to conquer nations. To baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which means their identity is no longer wrapped up in their flag or whatever their national identity is. It is now in God. He commands us to command them to obey his teachings do you see the theme of ministry Jesus has committed to the church? It is a world-changing, kingdom-conquering gospel that he commands us to take and fill all the earth with. In love? Yes. Yes, in love. But love is not remaining silent. Love is standing up and loudly proclaiming that by which man may be saved from destruction. So church, fear not. Jesus is king. Go proclaim the king and proclaim his kingdom. Amen?